We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, as we continue verse by verse, <coughs> excuse me, chapter by chapter, through the Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation. Nothing uh, omitted, nothing we um, evaded. We'll pick it up in verse 12, that will be sort of our pivot verse, and we're going to go to the Lord straight in prayer, and let's watch God develop in front of us. But it starts with this verse, and then the rest of the chapter, from verses 13 through 59, will hinge on this verse. The verse says, as Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. My prayer is, by the time we're done, you will have all known that verse by heart. Each part of it. I'm the light of the world, Jesus speaking. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we pray that as your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, discerning the intent and thoughts of our heart. God, I pray that as your word is active, may your word be brilliantly alive before us today. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. Lord, I pray that we would be drawn in and captivated by what it is you want to say here. May your word profoundly impact every one of us. We've come to do more than just be informed, but rather transformed. So God, have your word in this time, I pray. Please, Lord, today, in this room, make your presence clear in your word, we pray. And let this time be amazing. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We ask you to redeem every second. And, Lord, for the next 45 minutes or so, Lord, let this be time that is proper for you, perfectly ordained in depth and in width and in length. And, Lord, now stretch our spiritual stomachs to be able to receive all that you have for us now, from the milk to the meat, in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so, but search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. Our context for this is that Jesus is in the temple and a woman is thrown before him that is caught in adultery, for which they are pitting, if you will, the law of Moses against the compassion of the Savior. And they seem irreconcilable, except in chapter 1, John, already impacted by this, writes in retrospect that though the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We see only in Jesus both the harsh, cold taskmaster of the law being fully, fully satiated while the tender compassions of love of God are also completely met at the same time. And this becomes a problem in every other religion. One or the other has to suffer. On one side of it, either all of the guilt does not get punished, or if the guilt all gets punished, no love is exerted by the Godhead that tends to represent. Here, on the other hand, God is in hot pursuit and pays our price for us. Jesus ultimately saying, he without sin, if I put it in a rough uh, paraphrase, uh, well, you're fine, go ahead and throw the stone. As long as you're completely innocent, then that would be fine. The problem is the only person equipped to throw the stone is Jesus. And praise God, he's the one person who doesn't and has no intent to. And it is in this, he sees this woman face to face and he he asks her, where are your accusers now? 
She says, are they here? No one. There's no more accusers. And of course, she's looking at Jesus and recognizing there are no accusers. And in the face of Jesus, she sees no accusation. But Jesus doesn't compromise the truth either because it is in that he says, well, neither do I condemn you, but now go and sin no more. He'll never bend on, on sin. It isn't like he's going to take a popular vote and one day decide that what God has decided was sin back when isn't, is no longer sin because everybody else seems to enjoy it now. The bottom line is God never compromises on sin because it's all of that sin that he paid for at the cross. It is in that he turns and says for the first time, he'll say it again in chapter 9 after doing something profoundly wise uh, in regards to the world of the miraculous. Here, of course, to that girl, to this girl, there was quite a miracle, let's be honest. He looks and he says, I'm the light of the world. And please understand, you were not built for darkness. I was not built for darkness. Our eyes are built to retain and to absorb light for a reason. And light does so much more than just give us a little bit of peace. It gives us clarity and definition and understanding. It's things like that that are fundamental. It's in the darkness. We don't know where we're going for good reason. And Jesus now turns from that and he is going to be confronted by the religious leaders. Now you'd have thought they'd all drop their stones and left, but there seems to be some left over here somewhere that are now challenging God about his own witness. And to me, there's madness in this, but he says as a result, here's the hinge of it. I'm the light of the world. Now you're going to have two choices and we're going to see that this whole chapter breaks up to these next three statements because he's already defined that in those previous 12 verses. And he says, then he who follows me or follows after me will be verses 13 through 20 shall not walk in darkness verses 21 to 29, but have the light verses 30 to 36 of life 37 to 59. It is sort of a spoiler alert to note that the same people who seem to have dropped rocks, assumedly the same people who would drop the rocks they were going to throw at this girl in the temple, though Rome had made since 7 AD had made it illegal to perform capital punishment, seem to pick up those stones in the last verse of this chapter to throw at Jesus. How odd it is to think you have rights by God's means to actually stone God. How profoundly bizarre is that? So he starts with this. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so they respond. The Pharisees say to him in verse 13, you bear witness of yourself, your witness isn't true. They're too smart to consider Jesus' invitation. And this always seems to be the case. There will always be someone out there that is more caught up in the methodology than they are in the miracle. There will be several times where Jesus does something profound and anyone that is objective in their reason will notice that there was a guy who's been sitting forever in front of us that now is walking around carrying his, 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 his mat and all they can think about is why are you carrying your mat? That's illegal. And yet they've watched this man be paralyzed for decades. <clears throat> There's a man that's born blind, born blind. Whether he had eyes or not, we don't know. But one thing's for sure, in the next chapter, spoiler alert, he will be able to see. And then they're going to bring the guy before him and they're going to go all methodology on him. And yet they can, in all of that, they're completely leaping over the miracle that is staring them in the face. And here they're missing the invitation for their inspection. They're so caught up in trying to be wise that they can't see the simplicity of God's beautiful commandment here to come. In this case, simply to follow. Now think about what this means. If somebody asked you to follow and you trusted them and they had the means and the wisdom to be able to lead properly, 
you really don't have to know much more. As long as they're not out of your sight. Following is a very simple thing intellectually. Jesus didn't say, we'll do this and do this and do this. And if you do all of these things, somewhere in the end of it all, I'll meet you there. And you please understand, the difference between Jesus and anything else is going to bounce off of that simple thing that God doesn't invite you to go do, but invites you to come and be with. And he's always a come and see God. There's the beauty in it. He's not going, oh, if you could just do this, you could perform this and pray enough and make this trip and this pilgrimage and see this thing and kiss this thing. Sooner or later, somewhere in it, maybe you'll be acceptable in my throne room. Jesus is like, I'm the way. You're going to have to walk my path with me. And there's the beautiful part of it. It tells us that every step of a righteous man has been walked by God before this. And there's the beauty in it. God says, follow. You don't have to understand where yet. You don't have to understand what. You'll get it when you need it. And you go, well, why doesn't God give me all of that? Think this out. Nothing is more important to God than your relationship with him. That's how this starts. Now imagine if God sat down with Anna and said, Anna, yes, Anna, this is my plan. For 2018, on this day, you'll do this. On this day, you'll do that. On this day, you'll do that. And here is the whole thing. As a matter of fact, here's a little journal, just so you know. I've got it already for you. It's nice. It's got little scriptures I wrote at the bottom. And just every day, open it up and you'll see your thing. Well, imagine how tempted it would be for Anna at that point not to actually see God again until 2019. Because she'll have everything drawn out in front of her. But when God only tells you one thing, Two things happen out of that. One is it's simple so that it isn't about understanding, but rather about obedience. And the second is it allows us to exercise our faith when we don't have the answers. The father of our faith, who will be, by the way, brought up in this text, Abraham, in Genesis 12, was started with this. God says, come with me. Let's go. Let's go. Where? I'm not telling you. To do what? I'm not telling you. To a place I will show you. How do I know when I'm there? You'll know when you're there. I'll show you. And you realize God has this tendency to tell you one step at a time. So you can make simple what God made simple. You realize as I get older. Notice I didn't say old. But as I get older, one thing I notice is it really does get simple. God really wants it simple. The moment it gets overly complicated, I have a tendency to think man has too much say in the matter and God really is speaking less in the matter. In this, he's like, look at, follow me. If you follow me, all of this is going to happen. But this is the one thing I'm asking you to do is follow me. But to follow somebody without a lot of information takes trust. Let's just be honest. If I don't know where you're going, I better trust you mean well and your faculties in a way that not only meaning well, but you'll actually get that well in root. Well, notice what Jesus says. And remember, their whole thing is, well, you have no right to speak. Like, we're going to believe you. You're testifying of yourself. Madness, because this is God speaking. But Jesus answers them in verse 14, and he said to them, even if I bear witness to myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. One of the first things you start to notice in this is you start to see how Jesus has no problem recognizing he's never forgotten that he's come from heaven and he has no problem remembering the fact that he's going back. Now, I remind you, following him is going to tell us that. We're following him to places we would never have imagined, to people we would never have imagined meeting, people in unbelievable need. 
from the absolutely dead like Lazarus to the absolutely unclean like the leper who Luke, the doctor, tells us is in the final stages of that leprosy. You realize Jesus will take us to all kinds of places, to a man who's possessed by what he gives the name legion to on a place that no decent Jew goes to, regardless of the fact whether that guy was there or not. And you imagine if Jesus told you all of that ahead of time, would you go? Imagine if he's like, okay, look it, I'm bringing you to London. Okay, to do what? Well, well, I'll tell you when we get there. But I'm not going to tell you ahead of time. But once you get there, there's going to be some challenges and some trials and some very stripping and some very humbling things that are going to happen. But you will never have to question me. But you will see that man's messed up. And you will see that man needs a savior. And in that, you'll be forced to lean on me in a greater way than you've ever had to lean on me before. And yet in all of that, I can't tell you all that now because you just might not go to London if I told you all the challenges you'll have to overcome. So I'll just tell you this. Come to London and I'll trust you with the rest. One step at a time. She goes, I know where I'm going. I know where I come from and I know where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from and you don't know where I'm going. Clearly, if you knew where I came from and you knew where I was going, you really wouldn't be asking me to defend myself on this. Ephesians 4 tells us about how Jesus ascended on high, but first descended to the lower parts of the earth to do so. And he tells us that he has been sent by the Father, and this is important. Because when a father sends his son, he does so for the family business. Jesus makes that clear in Luke 19.10 when he says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The father went and sent his son, and Jesus went to do the family business, seeking and saving. Hebrews 1 tells us, by the way, that Jesus being the expressed image and the brightness of his glory, expressed image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus knows where he's going. Hebrews 10 verse 12 tells us that when he had offered sins, sacrifice for sins once and for all, he sat down. He was done. He sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus says in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet if I judge, my judgment's true. But I'm not alone. But I'm with the Father who sent me. Look at Jesus' example. The Father is not going to send me on anything that he's not going to be with me once he sends me. Jesus is going to do the same with us as he sends us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. As he sends us to all the world to make disciples He also says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus would never send us anywhere that he himself is not going to be. It says, It's written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I'm one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who bears witness, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Deuteronomy 19.15 tells us that by the mouth of two or more witnesses, a matter is established. And look at their response to him in verse 19. Remember, Jesus had said, I'm with the Father. The Father sent me, but he's with me. So they ask him, well, where is your father? Jesus answered, you would neither know me nor my father. For if you had known me, you would know my father also. Jesus is like, you wouldn't recognize the father if he was standing in front of you. But I find it interesting. He tells us these words he spoke in the treasury. As he taught in the temple, no one laid hands on him because his time had not yet come. Whilst the people are putting in their treasures, their gold and silver, and the 13 big horns that are there (coughs) in the court of the women, the area of the treasury, Jesus is dropping this nugget as God to mankind. You need to follow me. 
and following me, you need to recognize, I know where I came from, and you need to know, I know where I'm going. So you don't have to worry about that. Now, this is always fun, because I love to watch this dynamic when couples are driving. When you watch the woman drive, often the case, when the gal is driving, the husband tends to make kind of snide comments, but often that tends to be the case. Then something strange happens. He starts to drive and she starts to go, where are you going? Wait a minute. Is is it this way or is it that way? And I've watched this happen on several couples and it's rather humorous, but I recognize the bride tends to do this and I tend to do that with Christ, (coughs) excuse me, as his bride. I mean, he's like, just follow me. And I'm like, well, where are you going? And as if somehow, somewhere in all of this, I should check the map just in case he gets a little lost in the route. How silly is that? He's like, if you follow me, don't worry. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. You're just going to need to trust me because if you follow me, you'll never have to walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. So following him, I know where he's coming from. I know that he's with the father. I know that the father sent him and goes with him and that I would recognize him in Jesus And that's where all the valuables are. Jesus is making this comment to follow him at a place where everyone else is leaving their valuables. And the father says, you can trade those. So here's where it starts. He who follows me. Now, let me ask you, have you done more than just simply make a statement and say, all right, Jesus, you can save me from hell. I'll see you when you get there. When I stand before the gates, is that all you have? As if Jesus died for you just so you wouldn't go to hell. Jesus died for you to be with you. The Father sent him to reconcile you to him so you could spend eternity with him starting now. That's why Jesus says that when you believe in him, you have eternal life, not just will have eternal life. And somewhere in that, please don't miss this, Jesus is not inviting you to just go, all right, trust me, and that's enough, and then once, and there'll be a test at the end to make sure you make it in, and Peter's going to be there with a big pearl and make sure that he can roll it and get you in. Please note this. Jesus is inviting you to, an inv- to a relationship and that relationship is one where one of the two of you are going to have to lead. And this is the hard part. The hard part is some of us are used to making decisions on all of, this, all of the direction that we have in our life, or at least we think so. And then somewhere down the line, he says, follow me. And as he says, follow me, you're like, I will follow you, but I've learned this from my own children and other people that I know. It tends to be a part of youth that they follow you in front of you. Have you noticed that? It's like my, my oldest, she's great at this. She may, she have no clue where we're going, but we'll start walking and she will be miles ahead of me sooner or later. And sooner or later, somewhere down the line, I just have to stop and wait. Now, the good news with her is she actually turns around and comes back. Now, our youngest, I'm not really sure she would do that. And there is something about saying, God, I will follow you, but I will follow you from the front. The guy goes, that's not following. I'm not buying that. And somewhere we've made our decisions on this is how it should go and as long as it makes sense and as long as it isn't really troublesome and as long as it isn't uncomfortable and as long as I don't have to let go of this, <clears throat> whatever this is, we're going to be good. And God's like, that's not following. He's like, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. And in between, I have a mission the Father sent me on. And I'd like you to follow me into that mission because there's going to be a day when you are going to be doing this mission. And you need to see, please hear me, you need to see this exampled. Because just teaching it as doctrine is going to make you very weak in practice. And I do believe this is one of the weakest things in Christianity, if we're, if we're going to be honest. Is that we have teachers who can stand up here like this and can expound a text. We can exegete a concept or a verse or a precept. And yet, 
Everything is based on relationship. And the problem with relationships are they have to be modeled in front of us. We know scripture tells us love is a selfless giving of your life to give life. We know that. We know that it's not demanding. And we have a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 that tells us all of the characteristics of what it really looks like. But yet, when we really go and practice, our practical practical way of defining it is often quite contrary to what we know intellectually really love is according to Scripture. Scripture doesn't say, well, what it really is is a calling out to make sure the other person loves you by going, I love you, waiting for that response. Now, there's a good part to that. I have a daughter who's very much like that. That helps. Our youngest, I'm like, honey, I love you. And she goes, okay, that's all I get. Not like it. I know she loves me. That's not the point. But I love the fact that it's like I can't play that game with her. It's not going to work. And somewhere down the line, what, what Jesus is telling his guys is that the whole world is about to be changed, and you need to watch it happen because Jesus is doing more than just giving you a playbook. Now, what if Christianity really was like that? An honest discipleship was not just somebody else sitting down with you with a Bible and giving you more doctrine, though there's nothing wrong with getting doctrine if it's proper, but actually exampling in front of you what it looks like to show compassion and what it looks like to share the gospel and what it looks like to counsel and what it looks like to forgive and what it looks like to get on your knees for a beggar or a, a person who's down and out and actually get there and get dirty and love them and share Christ with them in practical ways and in verbal ways so that they can look and go, I watched it and I didn't just hear it. Because that's what Jesus is saying. Watch this. Come and follow me because you're not going to walk in darkness because he's the light of, of the world. And if he's the light of the world and you're following him, how could it possibly be dark? But if you follow him, you will see the mission of the father. And when you see the mission of the father, you go, you go well, the son's a chip off the old block. There's the idea here. Well, with that, then Jesus responds to them again. Now we move to our second part, shall not walk in darkness, verses 21 to 29. Here, let me say this. I'm the light of the world. Here's the first statement again. He who follows me. Try that. Could you just say, he who follows me? He who follows. So if Jesus starts with saying, I'm the light of the world, the next line is, who follows me. Okay, I'm going to try that one more time. That was the rehearsal. Here we go. This is the real one. Ready? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then he says, Right. And if we're going to follow him, we're going to watch Jesus do the family business that he's adopting us into. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you can't come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. Therefore, I said, you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. Literally, notice the he is in italics. It means we added to help. <laughs> not in the original text. You'll die in your sins. And they said to him, well, who are you? And Jesus said to them, well, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things in which I heard from him. Oh, they didn't understand that he spoke to them of the father. And then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am. Notice the he's in italics again. And that I do nothing of myself, but as the father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. For the Father has not left me alone. For I always do those things that please him. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The next line is, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness. Notice what Jesus says about this. 
He doesn't say that you will die with sin. What's the term that he uses there? You will die in your sin. Did you notice that? You were either going to die in your sin or you were going to die in Christ. One of the two is going to wrap you up. Which one do you want? But when you're wrapped in sin, you're going to walk around in darkness. There's the problem. And Jesus looks and he says, you can't follow me. I want you to follow me, but you can't. Do you know why? He tells us in verse 24. Look at verse 24 with me. He says, I said to you, you will die in your sin if you do not believe. And remember, believe, epistuchos, simply means trust. If you don't trust me, you'll never follow me. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's the problem. The one thing that's going to challenge your trust more than anything else is your understanding. When you can't understand and it doesn't make sense, it is an opportunity to exercise trust. It's easy to trust someone when all they're doing is giving you good things. Let's face it. But the moment they make a decision that's contrary to the decision you would make, the moment they go in a direction you wouldn't go, the moment that God makes a choice you wouldn't choose, it's a moment like that. He asks, do you trust me? And what Jesus is saying is, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to trust me. If you don't trust me, you're never going to follow. And if he is the, not a light, but the light of the world, and you're not going to follow him, you're going to walk in darkness. It's only in him you're not. And he goes, look it, you can't come. You can't come and not trust me. It's not going to happen. And he goes, your sins are going to be in, you're going to be in those sins you're going to choose those instead of me. Their response is a strange one. Well, they're like Jewish people. Do Jewish people ever go to hell? There are still debate among several of the rabbis today in Israel of whether a Jew could ever go to hell. The one thing they agree on is if it's possible at all, it would be in suicide. That's the one place they all seem to agree. If it's possible at all, it would be in that. And so they look and they say to Jesus says, well, where I'm going, you can't go. And they're so blinded that they can't even see the fact that where Jesus is going is the one place they're banking on going. And he's saying, you're not. They're like, well, we're clearly going to heaven. We're clearly going to be with the father. I don't think he is. He's going to kill himself. And yet Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't believe in me. And if you don't believe in me, you're not going to follow me. And if you're not going to follow me, you can't go where I go. And he's going to develop that even more here in a moment. And the question is, do I really want to walk in darkness? You know, what's interesting is John is so impacted by this concept. He'll use this concept at least four different times in the small, <clears throat> excuse me, book that he writes, First John. It's only five chapters long. And he'll tell us this. Hold on, pardon me. He says that this is the message we've heard from him. And that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. Now, if we say that we walk in the light and yet walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. That only makes sense. It tells us, as he continues on with that, he tells us, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all unrighteousness, from all sin. 
And then he says, there is a person out there who actually says he's in the light, but he hates his brother. He's in darkness until now. He says, look at a person who actually hates his brother is in darkness, walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He's gotten so consumed with that that he can't even see the simple in front of him. Look at, there's different degrees of blindness. We're aware of that. I mean, when I was a kid, I thought blind meant you couldn't see. Isn't that strange? Until I met a guy named Davey. Davey Davey was literally a knuckle breaker for Hell's Angels. He was a big man and he always talked like this. He always always had these great expressions like, as long as you're breathing, school's in session. I mean, David just, he was like that. He was a big guy. But he was legally blind versus being illegally blind. I'm not really sure. You know, like, I'm sorry, you're blind, that's illegal. But, and the idea was that David, I mean, he still sends me emails. And you can always tell when David sends an email because it's like the letters are this big on your page. But I get the idea that David, he can see things-ish. He just can't see detail. Does that make sense? As a matter of fact, there's a rather large and kind of a rambunctious young man that um, also used to attend our fellowship back in California. He was like 6'6". Six, six. He's bigger than any one of us in this room. And he was, he was just always like the living example of Red Bull. You know? and, uh, and he was just everywhere he went, you just kind of got out of his way because he just went with purpose. And he went up to this guy, Davey, and I remind you, who has quite a history of violence. And apparently somewhere down the line in this, they had, he had waved to him from the distance. And he's like, well, I'm really kind of offended that you didn't wave back. And he's like, what? What are you, talk- what are you talking about? And he goes, look, at the next time that I wave and you don't wave back, don't be surprised if I slap you on the, the arm just to let you know. And he goes, be it that I'm legally blind, don't be surprised if I hit you back. And the idea was, is he just like, he could see, but he could only see shapes. Remember the one situation, the only situation in the gospel is where Jesus' healing took two steps. Do you remember that? There's only one. And it was a man that was blind. And the first time, as he actually performs, puts his hands on him, he says, what do you see? And he says, I see people and they look like broccoli. Actually, he says they look like trees but just the same. And then he kind of goes, I kind of see the shapes. And then he goes one more time. And now the man can see completely. And the reason I say that is, is that maybe there are degrees in that as John talks about it in the gospel on first John, where he goes, man, when you start to hate someone, just the definition starts to change. It's like, you see the shapes of things, but you just don't see clearly. And then there's, it gets to the point where you just don't see anything at all, where the darkness completely blinds your eyes. At which point now, you just can't see at all. Interesting, Jesus is talking to these individuals and they're so blinded by their own thing, they can't see that God in the flesh is standing before them and inviting them to come with him. How crazy is that? But is it crazy for us? He's going, come follow me. Well, as long as this is how you make me follow you, I'll go. And Jesus is going, you are aware, right? That's still not following. When you set the rules, that's not following. And he goes, look, if you're going to follow me, you're not going to walk in darkness. You'll never, ever, and the term in that is to literally, you'll never have to walk in darkness, but you're going to have to trust me. So look at the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. Here's the quiz. The light of the world, he that follows me shall not. Okay, thank you. Now let's try that one more time with everyone. Now, look at 
or at least lip of the words as if you know it. All right, look at I'm the light of the world, Jesus speaking. He that shall not. Thank you so much. Look at the next start, verse 30. But have, and the word there, echo, means to hold the light. Now Jesus is going to turn to another group of people, verse 30, and he says, he spoke, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Well, that's a great place to start, isn't it? So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's our context for a verse often quoted, two verses actually, if you will, often quoted. Their response is actually going to be blown away. Actually, I'm more surprised by their response than Jesus' beautiful offer here. Because the response is, we're, notice it says in verse 33, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How could you say you'll be made free? Hello, have you ever read your own history book? You were birthed in the crucible of Egypt. You were then, went in, were, by God's grace, went through the wilderness for 40 years and then were given the grace to actually go and conquer the land of Canaan for seven nations that were greater and more powerful than them. But they were only there for a small period of time. From roughly, if you will, about the 13th, 1400s BC till 721 in the north and 586 in the south. He goes, and then you were taken captive again. The north by Assyria, the south by Babylon. And now the time in which they're speaking, they're still under the powerful thumb of Rome. They actually can't say they're free, but they do. And here's the most amazing part. As I look, one of the first things I recognized when God opened my eyes when I said yes to him was that most of the people who are slaves have no concept that they are. They don't even know the kind of, the kind of slavery that they're in. And they can look and go, you don't understand. I've got all this money or I've got this rich heritage or you don't understand. I've got a good job. I've got a, and you're like, you don't understand the bondage you're really in. Interesting, because what he says here, notice, by the way, is he remember sin was something they would die in? But notice here he tells us in verse 31 that his word is what we could abide in. On their case, it says, in other words, sin is something I get, that I die in or his word is something that I can abide in. It's one or the other. Would I rather be in God's word or would I rather be in my own sin? And he says, look, at if you abide, men, remain in my word, you'll be my disciples and you will know. The word here to know interesting is not that that us where it's sort of perceive there's certain things we can teach please hear me on this there's certain things we can teach doctrinally for instance i could say that may there the balloon appears to be blue would all of you agree that the balloon for may is blue over there just so you know what i'm talking about would you agree okay i mean and i'm not arguing over what shade of blue we're talking here it's for the the simple of it it's blue versus july what color is july that, so this is really, these are simple questions, right? I'm trying to make it easy here. How about August? Okay, yeah, that was good, yeah? Good, well, well done. You've got your colors. It's a good room for that. You didn't learn that by experience. Somebody in essence said, that color is yellow. And from that point on, we just all agreed to call it yellow. But then there are other things that have to be learned by experience. Not you personally experiencing it, but at least being in the corporate experience. This is the thing I had to grow in in my walk with Christ. Initially, my thought was that the other word for no, gnosko, is the idea of something where I have to experience it. But I've learned sometimes, well, let me say it this way. I've been married to the same beautiful woman for 27 years, almost 28 in November, where I'm almost a month away. And most of my 
understanding of her comes from corporate experience. Not how I've experienced her personally, but what we've experienced together. I can tell you certain things that I know are going to freak her out. A mouse or a spider, for instance, could easily create that. Not because I've personally experienced, but I've experienced with her her reaction. I was there and watched it. It's rather humorous, but that's another story. And the whole point of it is, is that somewhere when I started, I'm like, I have to understand Jesus by experiencing him versus having experiences with him. And the reason I say this, I remind you, when we're going to talk about relationship-oriented things, we have to be there to observe and to experience together. Love, mercy, forgiveness, humility, things that are going to be fundamental in a relationship are things we observe. And what Jesus tells us is that truth is going to be something that you'll know to the point of that's yellow, that's blue. But the truth of Christ and the freedom you're going to experience is something that you're going to experience together. You'll know this truth. You will know it not just by being taught it. You will know it by experience. You'll be able to tell me how you know that truth. And that truth will make you free. That's interesting. What Jesus tells us, please hear me, is that lies are something that incarcerate you, but the truth is something that can liberate you. And I remind you, he who chooses to follow Jesus will not walk in darkness, but have the light. And that's what he's shown us. You know what light looks like? Light looks like freedom. You want to see bondage? Try to get out of a room in the dark that you're unfamiliar with. It's a really unpleasant experience. You're certainly not going to go quick. And if you do, more than likely your toes are going to be used in unpleasant ways. One of the places we have the privilege of going when we go to Israel is Hezekiah's tunnel. It was drilled down for us to be able to get there, but ultimately different teams on both sides went and met in the middle to actually connect the Gihon Spring to a place inside the city of Jerusalem so they could draw water Because, you know, if you're going to have a city anywhere in the Middle East, up on a hill is a good idea because that helps so that when guys come at you, you can roll things at them. Gravity's in your favor. But on the problem with that is gravity's not in your favor because there's one thing you do need to live, and that's water. And so how do you actually keep water in a place like this? Well, Hezekiah's Tunnel is one of those things. It's roughly a mile long, and we do it in the dark. I don't know of any other group that does that, but we're weird that way. And we join hands. And as we join hands, there are places where the tunnel gets, I mean, and you're still walking in water up to, well, in my case, up to my ankle, uh, in Hugo's case, maybe up to his neck. But uh, as we, as we kind of walk, we kind of skirt the same wall and we hold the other person's right hand in front that's next to us. And we let them know. I want to warn you, our other hand is usually, I'm the most familiar, so I kind of had in the front of it. But, you know, I'm like, all right, look, we're going to kneel down a little bit here. It's getting a little smaller. It's getting lower. You want to kneel down. Hugo, you'll be okay. And as we keep going, all right, now you're going to get to a crawl. Hugo, it's still going to be okay. And, and somewhere down the line, after about an hour of this, you've been dark for an hour. And there's this beautiful verse in the book of Psalms that says, nevertheless, you are always with me. You take me by my right hand. You lead me with your counsel. And afterwards, receive me to glory. And for an hour, that's what we've been doing with each other. Taking them by their right hand, leading them with our counsel. But on the other side of that, the place we go out is a place where the man that's born blind in the next chapter receives his sight. For an hour, we got to experience what that man experienced. 
and you walk slow. In the beginning especially, you walk slow. And every, it's amazing how many people actually get quite nervous because the water sounds quite rushing in the first step. As a matter of fact, there's a particular gal that was so afraid she fell. And then a little later, she fell a second time. And there's a shirt that says, I survived Hezekiah's tunnel. But we were going to get one that says, I wet myself in Hezekiah's tunnel. And the back was going to say twice. Anyways, all of that said, please hear me. You'll never have to walk in darkness if you're following Jesus. And if you're following, if, if you follow Jesus, the beauty in it is that you will actually have the freedom that comes with living in God's light. And that, that freedom, that light is, is going to give us absolute understanding to truth that is not just in concept or ideal, but in an example in front of us. I mean, think of this. If you, if you lined up every religious leader on the planet, that at least, let's go with the famous ones so that you don't feel like you're in any sort of, you know, uh, you know, sort of dis- discounter of it. But in all of that, if you did and you said, all right, if the whole world were to act like one of these individuals, who would you choose? I mean, there's certain individuals that seems right obvious from the beginning. I certainly wouldn't choose that one. But I'm like, everyone was actually in a place where they were forgiving and loving. I'm like, that's amazing to me. Well, follow me on this as we wrap this up. Remind you, they're like, what do you mean we're slaves? Euthyros, the word for free, liberated. We've never been in bondage to anyone. And Jesus says, well, actually, you're missing the point. Verse 34. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Here's the problem. The slave doesn't abide in the house forever, but a son does. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So either we will be either slaves in the household of sin or sons in the kingdom of God. Those are our choices. Now, here, let me wrap this up with this. You're going to get this. And then we'll, the rest of the text walks clearly with the issue of life. And we'll see that with Jesus. Please hear me. The Bible does not say everyone's born a child of God. The Bible says we're all born children of wrath. Ephesians 2 makes that clear. It isn't like God says, well, we're just going to... But here's the good news. That God can take any human being and bring them into a family. So let me ask you this, quickly. There are three different ways to become part of a family. What are they? You tell me. What's that? Adoption. That's one. Born into the family. That's two. Marriage. Those are the three ways. I mean, can anyone think of anything else? That's not like weird and from some Brazilian film. But I mean, the three ways. Have you found it interesting that when God does something with you, he does it completely? It tells us that we've been born again. Not of corruptible seed, but of the precious blood of the Lamb, Peter tells us. Jesus told us we had to be born again. He told Nicodemus that in John 3. You have to be born into this family. But, Paul tells us in Romans that the spirit of adoption dwells within us by which we cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father. So wait a minute, you're adopted and you're born into it? But it's even better than that. Because the scripture also says that you're the bride of Christ. You see, what God did is he covered every base. He made sure that if there's a way to be part of the family, you're every one of those things. Do you realize that's everything that God does, he does to the extreme? Because he wants to make sure there's no loopholes and there's no chink in the armor. And the whole rest of this is going to be about whose father do you have? Now understand, some of us, when it comes to earthly fathers, we kind of look and go, well, I kind of, you can't really pick that guy. But the good news is you can pick this one. And that's what Jesus says. Now he's going to whittle them down to talk about whose dad they have. And the rest of this really is who's your daddy. Look at verse 37. 
I know you're Abraham's descendants. And this is the last thing, by the way. Look at Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Verse 37. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you, keep, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I've seen from my father, and you do what you've seen with your father. Well, the answer, well, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the work of Abraham. And imagine Jesus being able to say, man, you should have seen what it was like when I told him, follow me. When I said, follow me to Abraham, he's like, okay, let's go. And you don't understand, my wife's name is contentious. That's what Sarai means. I have to tell her, hey, honey, God just spoke. Which God? Because Joshua 24 tells us he came from an idol-worshiping household. Hey, God just spoke. Which one? I don't know. And he said, let's go. Where? I don't know. To do what? I don't know. You could see her going, hmm. I think you might want to get one of those psychiatric treatments, some checkup on that. You're getting a little old, and I want to make sure that you've got full faculty. And he's like, no, God has really spoken. And he said, follow me, let's go. He actually said, I'd be a father. And you could see Sarai at 65 looking at, at, at Abram and saying, you're 75 years old, and I'm 65. And this is what he said. Yes, this is what he said, and I believe him. That doesn't make any sense. You're right. That's not scientific. You're right. The world's going to laugh, perhaps. But he said it and I'm doing it. And I want you with me. Look at Jesus is going to whittle down and you only got two here. The answer said, Abraham's our father. Jesus said, if Abraham were your father, you'd do the works of Abraham. Verse 40. But you seek to kill me. A man has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You do your deeds of your father. And they said, we were not born of fornication. You realize what that means, right? They're playing that out with the whole, so I heard a rumor somewhere down the line that Mary got married, pregnant. It was a shotgun wedding. That whole Christmas thing is a shotgun wedding. We have one father, God. And Jesus is like, wow, are you deceived. If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. And I have not come of myself, but he sent me. Now, why don't you understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. And he goes, this is going to be a clear thing John's going to bring up back in 1 John again. You want to see what it looks like for somebody that really loves God? It's not going to be the spiritual gifts they exert. It's going to be their openness to God's word. Because in the end of it all, it isn't just about Jesus being Savior, it's about him being Lord. He goes, why don't you understand my speech? You're not able to listen to my word. And let Jesus now pulls the plug on the whole thing. You are the of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own resources. He's the liar, a liar and a father of it. I actually like what the NIV says about this because he says when he speaks a lie, he speaks his native tongue. It's like Hugo would say his native tongue's French. Deborah might say his native, her native tongue is Italian. You know, uh, in the idea you ask the enemy if he were going to tell you the truth, which wouldn't be the case, he'd say my native tongue is lying. That's the idea. And he goes, look at I look at my father and this is what my father does and I'm living it out in front of you. You can see my father's come to save and you can watch that through me. You can see me love people and approach the needy and, and wait for them and be tender and for that proper moment when they're actually ready to receive and I'm going to be there for that. And he goes, but then I watch you and you know what I see? You look just like your dad, lying and wanting to kill. And he goes, that doesn't look anything like the father. He goes, you've never seen him, but let me tell you, I know the father and you look nothing like him. There's the idea. Verse 45 says, but I tell you the truth. Because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? 
He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you don't hear because you're not of God. Adrianic, this is the religious leadership that Jesus goes, you're not of God. The Jews answered and said, do we not rightly say you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Oh, that's just trash talking now. Jesus said, I don't have a demon. I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste or see here death. Remember, it's he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And he says, hey, if you keep my word, you'll never taste death in there. Like, well, now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead. And the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than my father, our father Abraham, who's dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? Imagine talking to God and going, who do you think you are? Are you greater than Billy Graham? Are you greater than the Archbishop of Canterbury? Who do you think you are? He's like, I actually made the Archbishop of Canterbury. Really made Billy Graham. And I still hold him together with my word. Jesus answered said, I honor myself. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say is your God. Oh, yet you have not known him, but I know him. If I should say I don't know him, well, then I should be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Now, I'll be honest. Since Jesus started his ministry at 30 and died at roughly 32, 33 years old, I'd be just offended by the fact they thought that I wasn't just 50. I'm like, hello, really? Well, and it's like Jesus, but he's obviously, that's not his point. They're like, you're not even 50. How in the world do you realize how long ago Abraham was? How delusional are you? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego aimi, I am. And they know what that means. Jesus' I am statement here puts him in the same place. And please hear me. Back in Exodus 3, when Moses is actually going and he starts to speak to a bush that's on fire, please note this. The bush being on fire was not that weird. In the Midian desert to this day, tamarisk trees emit an oil that in extreme heat, it catches fire pretty easy. A burning bush isn't actually the crazy part. The crazy part is that it's not consumed. Imagine you're kind of walking and you see this thing catch fire and go, that thing will be gone in a minute. And then you keep looking and it's not. And then you keep looking and it's not. It's still on fire and it's not burning out. That's what happens when the presence of God is there. I pray that for every one of you and me too. For some of you, the moment you said yes to Jesus and you were like, yes, God, people were like, that'll fizzle out. You just give, it's a phase, mom, that kind of thing. But when the presence of God is there, it never has to fade. And that's what catches them. But then the strangest part happens. Moses turns, and as Moses turns, the, the, the bush starts talking. That's a little weird, let's be honest. And at that point, I think, heat stroke. I've been out here too long. But it tells him to do the craziest thing. Put yourself in this. It's roughly 45 degrees out there, uh, Celsius. It is a bush has caught fire in front of you, and it says, now take off your shoes. Are you nuts? Everything around me is on fire, and I'm going to... Any of you ever walk on a beach when it's actually just 20 degrees outside in the sun? I mean, it's like walking on lava. And imagine, it's more than twice that. A bush is on fire in front of you. He goes, take off your shoes, but he does. 
And he goes, no, I'm going to send you to go and deliver my people who are in bondage. He says, look at, I've seen their torture. I've heard their cries. I know their pain. And I'm going to come down and rescue them. Hear me on this. God says, I'm going to rescue them. So I'm sending you. And you can imagine Moses is like, I was good till the send me part. Do you know how I'm going to do it? Through a man. I'm going to use a human being. I'm going to use a human being to get there to do this. That's rough. Because it could have been God just could have gone and went, boom. Why didn't he just do that? Because he loved the Egyptians too. Moses is like, so, okay, I've got a problem here. I'm going to go back and tell these people that God has sent me. And they've been raised in Egypt now for 430 years. They've been, they've been raised in Egypt. Which God am I going to tell them? What's your name? Well, how do I, what name do I give them? God's like, tell them, I am. And I would go, you are what? I'm going to say I am, and that's going to be enough for them. They're going to go, uh, and? And we have to wait 1,400 years. Because 1,400 years later, God answers the question. Because Jesus, God in the flesh, says, I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd and the gate to the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. You are what? Jesus is like, I'll answer it. Just give me time. So when Jesus says, I am here, they take them back all the way to the place where they were slaves, though they said they'd never been. And he says, I am. And their response is an interesting one. They pick up stones to stone him. Stones must have been there. You stone a person for blasphemy, not for bad grammar. And understand in that, what he's saying is, look at, no matter how long ago Abraham was, in this case, we're talking about 2,000 years ago, regardless of that, I was there then too. Now there's only one person that does that. John knows this. John the Baptist said, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me is a man preferred before me because he was before me. It tells us in Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had ever formed the earth or the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. Your throne is established on old. You are from everlasting, Psalm 93, 2. Psalm 103 verse 17, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. He's blessed from everlasting, Psalm 106, 48. And it tells us even where he would be born, this uh, this Bethlehem that they went to, Bethlehem, that they searched the scriptures in Micah 5, 2. Listen to what it says. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the, th- the thousands in Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Micah told us that. Here's how it ends. Jesus says, look it, if you're willing to follow me, that's all you need to do is trust me enough to follow me. You'll never have to walk in darkness. And because of that, you'll walk in the light. And that light will be the light of life. You'll have clarity and you will have a truth, but you're going to need to stay in my word. The moment you bounce out of my word and expect me to bend, you're going to start going into darker territory. It's because you're taking a right turn where I'm going left and you need to follow me. Today, I just want to ask, are you following him or trying to lead him? Because if you're willing to follow him, you'll never walk in darkness, ever. In the craziest moments of my life, the moments that have never made sense, the beauty is I've never had to be in the dark because I can look and somewhere in it, it told me, God told me in Psalm, or Proverbs 3, to trust in him 
with all my heart, but not lean upon my own understanding, but rather in all my ways acknowledge him. If I could look and say, oh, I just need to see you in this, Jesus. Well, I've got different ways that I want to do that. But God can do it by simply reaching down, and God can do it by sending a man, and he's done both. As we go to prayer and prepare for communion, let me ask you, have you dealt with that? Because today, my prayer is for each of us that we would choose to follow him. Well, how do I do that? What do I expect him to do? To show up in a robe? Well, it starts by opening his word and letting him speak to you there. It is an amazing journey. You'll be on there. I started that when I was 23, and that was more than a couple years ago. And I have never for a breath regretted it. And I'm still on the most amazing adventure of my life. The coolest part is you get to be part of it now. We will have experiences together and go, remember when God did? And we'll be able to look back and giggle over it because we'll know by experience. Now look at Jesus will lead them through the beggars and make them whole, through the lepers and make them clean, through the possessed and make them safe and sane and whole. And he'll lead us to the cross where we'll watch him die. And what Jesus said is, if when you see the Son of Man lifted up, you can, and then you, it'll be insane for you to think, this guy's doing this for selfish reasons. Me dying on the cross, you can't go, well, that guy's doing that to be selfish. Because then you'll realize how dumb what you're saying is. And we'll go there and go, for us, think about how that wouldn't make any sense. Are you kidding me? Dying on the cross, you're supposed to be almighty. How do you die on a cross? Because those are the moments we think it's done. We go, that's impossible from this point on. By now he stinketh. But God had already made plans. Three days on the third day, he was going to rise again and offer us a new life. And it's a new life where we follow him now. Not just accept him, but follow him. Trusting him says we follow him. Have you, have you done that? Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for this beautiful, granted lengthy text. A beautiful text. <laughs> and I realize that you didn't call us just to go, you called us to follow. <clears throat> In the Gospel of John, where we've been walking through, Lord, it starts when you start calling people and you say, follow me, and they follow you. They drop their nets. They leave their boats. They'll walk away from their tax booth. And they'll follow you. And they have no clue what you have in store for them. And as I look at the adventure these guys had with you, you made it so easy. Just follow me. Do you trust me? Then follow me. Do you trust me? Then follow me. I'm going to do that, Lord. I'm going to do so much more than just agree with you in principle, but walk with you in practice. So here in this room, Lord, you know what's in our hearts. And you know those things we battle with and those challenges that are set before us and the things that don't make sense and the pain we have from that. But Lord, show us that nothing is impossible with you. Even when something seemed dead, you can resurrect. Even when something seemed completely overtaken, you are the overcomer over everything. And I pray today here in this room 
that you give our faith feet to walk. And that if we would follow you, we would not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if in this room there be any who have yet to say yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross to pay for your sins, his resurrection to be the Lord and leader of your life, and you recognize today by the power of God's Holy Spirit that today is the day to say yes, pray this prayer with me. God, I'm a sinner. You know what I know it. And I stand before you in my sins, regardless of how nice I try to make myself. I'm still in my sins. But you so loved me that you sent Jesus to die on the cross so that all those sins could be paid for so that I don't have to be in them anymore. But instead I could be in him. And when he died on that cross, my bill was paid. And when he was buried, it was buried with him. And when he rose, he left it behind to offer me a new life as my Lord and leader And I say, yes. I may not understand everything, but I understand that much. Jesus, lead me. Lead me, Jesus. On from here as my Lord and Savior. In your name I pray. And if you agree with that prayer, I was going to say, amen. Lord, now as we prepare for communion for our last couple minutes and dismiss, let our hearts be right with you. Please, as we come to your table, May we recognize the price you paid and the gravity of it. In Jesus' name, amen.